0: Hey, everybody, this is Chuck Everson from Villanova University, and welcome to the Big East Rewind. The Big East Rewind came about when Sonny Sparrow and I from Syracuse University were on a recruiting trip and became friends. And we've been friends ever since. And we had a bond that is developed over playing in the very tough Big East Conference. The Big East Rewind is all about Big East basketball, old school style with the battles and stories that came about during our time playing in the Big East from the perspective of the media, coaches, former players, and even officials. So we hope you enjoy the Big East Rewind. Today on this edition of the Big East Rewind, Sonny and I talked to Dana O'Neill, the senior writer for The Athletic for 25 years. She's covered every sport known to man, and she's written a book, called The Big East Inside the Most Entertaining and Influential Conference in Basketball History. And she's going to tell us all about it right here on The Big East Rewind. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to this edition of The Big East Rewind. I'm your host, Chuck Everson from Villanova. And my co-host, as always, is the sensational Sonny Sparrow. But today, he looks a little bit like the sleepy Sonny Sparrow. So I hope you're doing all right, Sonny. You okay? I'm good, man.
1: I'm good. I changed my glasses just for you, Chuck. That's just it, to, my just man. To give you a little different look, man. I know you
0: like that, so. I yes, I do. Yeah, <laughs> I do. It's a good look. Um, well, today. Plus my
1: tops all the time, David. Today
0: we do. have a distinguished member of the media who's covered the Big East, amongst other things. I mean, she's been right now, currently the senior writer for the Athletic. And she's a 25-year reporter, and she's covered everything from the Super Bowl to the Little League World Series to the Final Four and everything in between, uh, the NBA Finals, everything. But uh, I have it under uh, good authority that her favorite job, though, is the beat writer, Sonny, for Villanova Basketball. I know that's her favorite position that she's had. Really? And currently, really? You got confirmation on that? <laughs> I have affirmation, yeah. And currently... Uh, she's the author of the new book that comes out tomorrow, uh, "The Big East: Inside the Most Entertaining and Influential Conference in Basketball History." Please welcome to the show, Dana O'Neill. How are you, Dana?
2: I am great, and thank you for that very kind introduction. And I will say that covering Villanova was a pleasure. I started with Jay Wright, and it was it was a lot of fun. It really was. I I can't complain.
0: Yeah, I mean, anytime. You get around that guy and you never hear a lot of complaints from people, you know, that, you know, he's he's a genuine article, you know.
2: We used to go, we used to go as media members and we would sit around and everyone tell war stories about these horrible coaches and they're like, all right, right, what do you got, Dana? I'm like, I got nothing. (laughs) They're like, come on. I'm like, no, I literally have nothing this bad, like he's as easy to deal with. They thought I was lying.
1: Yeah. Uh, Jay, Jay's a great guy. I, I can put up with the Villanova love fest that we are got going on right here
0: for a little bit, but no, Listen, don't let Sonny kid you, Dane. I you know he's, you know, he's got his orange, you know, guys, we've had a lot of orange men. Coach Beheim was on and. You know, I I I've told the story. We I've stayed with him on vacation. We went on vacation, and everything in this place was orange. So,
2: let <laughs> so you, you know. my husband, my husband is from Syracuse, so I have you know I have a little. He was a season ticket holder growing up, so trust me, we get our share of that in this household too, for sure. There
0: you yeah. go. So I knew, I knew I liked her, man. I knew there was something. <laughs> there Yep. Yeah. So let's get so let's get started. How did you How did you go from you know, at Penn State, you were a business major. So, how did you go from that to getting into being a sports journalist? Have, tell, talk to us about your journey into the journalism uh, trade.
2: Yeah, I, I tell everybody I was kind of dumb lucky. Um, I was a really good English student in high school. I had a great high school English teacher and all that, and I loved sports. I was an athlete. I kept uh, high school football and baseball stats. but I went to college kind of clueless, and was going to major in business because I had a wealthy uncle. (laughs) I thought, all right, I'll be rich too. And I took one economics course and said, nope, nope, that's not going to actually happen. So I kind of was at square one. I didn't know where to go. And the resident advisor on my floor, uh, my freshman year, was on the Daily Collegian. And she was just having, like, it was a freshman dorm, and she was telling us all things to get involved with. And she suggested that if you're interested, hey, the Daily Collegian is looking for writers, go take the test. So I took the test, I had zero journalism experience, tiny high school, never had a journalism class. You basically got a bunch of facts and you had to write a story with them. And at the end they asked you, should you get chosen for the Collegian? What department would you like to work for? And like I said, I was a sports fan. My dad's a diehard sports fan. And I remember thinking in my head, well, if I get chosen for sports, maybe I'll cover football and meet Joe Paterno. I mean, that was literally like the extent of my well thought out plan here. And uh, I got on the Collegian, and by Thanksgiving that year, I came home and told my parents I want to be a sports writer. I mean, literally, I don't hmm. know what would have happened if she didn't tell me, hey, go try out for the Collegian. I often wonder. I have no clue because I definitely was not going to be a business person. That well, it definitely
0: sure. worked out pretty good for you, Dana. I, mean, uh, <laughs> yeah,
2: I can't complain.
0: Yeah, you've covered everything, you know, as they said in the intro, from the uh, Kentucky Derby to, the, to yes. the Little League World Series mm-hmm. and everything in between. What's your favorite event that you've covered?
2: Well, I mean, look, every year I love covering the NCAA tournament. I mean, there's nothing like sitting down um, for that first game on the first, you know, first round, the first noon tip on a first round. And the same thing for the national championship game. When I sit down at my seat, I still get chills. So that is always my favorite event Um, in terms of like the, the major thing. I just had this conversation with a friend of mine, like what's the best thing I've ever covered? And I hate choosing that. I mean, I'm, I was at, by dumb luck, I was at the Leitner shot against Kentucky in 1992. Um, I was at Chris Jenkins shot, obviously, uh, in 2016. I was at Jalen Sug shot just this past March. I mean, those were all great March moments. But the one thing in terms of just atmosphere, it sounds crazy, but when I was at the Belmont and uh, American Pharaoh came around the turn to finally break the Triple Crown curse, I, I've never felt a crowd like I felt that moment I mean it just it it sends chills up my spine right now thinking about it wow. because, I mean it's horse racing it's not the same major event but because it had been such a triple crown drought that moment was just ridiculous
1: I so, gotta ask you in, in your years at Penn State something that's really important to me how many times did you visit the creamery and what's your favorite? <laughs> <laughs> what's your favorite flavor
2: well I mean honestly the creamery is like so when I was in school, it was tiny because I'm that old. It was like this tiny little hole in the wall. Right now, it's gorgeous with like the the outside patio. And so now I go as an alum and I get it to go in, in the uh, in the dry ice bags and all that. I mean, back in the day, like you know, we had like the good old peachy paterno was a big thing because they didn't have a lot of flavors. It's I was just up for um I took my son up for the uh, Penn State Auburn game and the line was just down the block I, I i just can't even so i usually go on like off days when i can get up there i sent that to my nephew who was a penn state graduate who lives in los angeles that was his um one of his christmas presents i had penn state ice cream shipped to him for a few years, for a few months very beautiful. popular
0: beautiful thing so so you've been so now you you get into philadelphia and and you're on with the daily news uh mm-hmm. and and you get you know, there's a bunch of, I know you were with the Phillies for a little bit and, and the yep. Eagles for a little bit, you know, and then, and then you got involved with college basketball. So talk about the jump into college basketball and how you started working um, with the big yeah. five teams and, and, and Villanova.
2: Well, I got really lucky. I mean, the Philadelphia Daily News was such a, a joy uh, as a place to work with for and the people I worked with. I mean, you talk about an all-star cast of writers and an incredible section I mean Phil Jasner was covering the the Sixers at the time we had you know Paul Hagen covering the Phillies I learned so much just by observing and um you know hey it's the big five I mean I I I was desperate to cover anything and Dick Girardi was kind of in charge of college basketball coverage at the time and he stuck me on LaSalle um with Speedy with Speedy Mars and I had a great experience I mean because Speedy is amazing um so that was great and um I think, you know, Girardi, I think I got pregnant and Girardi decided that he wanted to move me someplace a little safer neighborhood. So he put me on Villanova. And at the time, it was just after um, Jay had gotten hired. So, you know, they weren't honestly very good. I I remember taking my daughter um, when she was first born. I would go to practice and carry her in the infant carrier and I'd sit her on the press table, watch practice. And Jay would scream from the opposite side, move the baby. I have no idea where the ball is going. So, you know, I kind of came into Villanova when Jay got hired. And um, like I said, they, they weren't very good for a couple of years. They weren't uh, bad, but they certainly aren't what they are now. You know, I had had experiences with Villanova when I was right out of college. I, I worked at the Trentonian in Trenton New, Jer- Trenton, New Jersey, and I covered the Princeton, uh, you know, Villanova game. I mean, I'm, that's where the first time I met Rolling Massimino was I went down to interview him for that game and he told me he liked my shoes. Um, it's like <laughs> random things that I remember. So I, you know, I knew Big Five basketball and what a big deal it was. So I was just grateful to cover any of the teams that I could, honestly.
1: So I, I got to ask you the next question. I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump forward just a little bit. Yeah. Where did the idea for the Big East book? Where did that come from? Where did that? Jump I wish from?
2: I, I wish I could say that I was brilliant and I thought this was a great idea. I'm, again, like so, a, a book agent by the name of Matt Carlini. Who had done a book with Bruce Feldman, one of my coworkers uh, at the Athletic, reached out to me on Twitter. I had written a story. um, This is random off-season story about the Big East coaches' meetings and how insane they were. Like, kind of, I got Gary Williams and and people to tell me funny stories about how like outlandishly unscripted these Big East meetings were. And I wrote a story, just kind of a funny story uh, for Rivalry Week, in fact. And Matt Carlini is a Georgetown graduate and he saw the story and he reached out to me and said, hey, I've been thinking that there's a book in the Big East and I'm curious to know if you'd be interested in, in considering it. And honestly, my first reaction was, well, there's, there's gotta be like a bazillion books about the Big East. Like, How could there not be like one book about the Big East? And there wasn't. Um, and so he and I kind of went back and forth on it a little bit. and. He convinced me that I could do it, honestly, and uh, helped me put together the book proposal and shop it around in New York City and and really get the whole thing going. And once I started to do it, I'm like, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I know so many of the people involved and I know so many of the stories, I've either covered them or experienced them in some capacity. So it made sense, but I am not bright enough to have realized that there was a book in the Big East and I should tell it.
1: Okay. That's good. Yeah, hey, it's good to have friends, right? So they right? obviously recognize, they recognize something in your style and your writing that they wanted to bring to this topic. How yeah. deep a dive did you go?
2: I mean, I went as deep as I possibly could, you know, that I tell everybody, I was so lucky, like in the middle of, of COVID, when everyone is on lockdown and, and just going through a lot of misery, I was living in the seventies and eighties. I mean, I'm talking to Jim Beheim Bo- and Jim Calhoun. I got Thank God I spoke with Coach Thompson before he passed away. Um, right before COVID shut us down, I spent two and a half hours or three hours, I forget how long it was, in an office with Lou Karnaseka and Jack Kaiser, the former St. John's athletic director. Oh, wow. I mean, so I got everybody that I could from the obvious players to um, the you know, the, the big name coaches and players, you know, Patrick Ewing, Chris Mullen, all, you know, Gene Smith, Michael Graham. Uh, Ed Pinkney, obviously, but then I tried to go like down into the weeds with some people. I thought ta- I interviewed the guy who played the Dome Ranger at Syracuse all of those years. Familiar to you, sonny You know, sonny I mean, and I, I- are I-
0: laughing because we had him on the show. Best. Oh, Dennis
2: he's fabulous.
0: Yeah, he's yeah. A- fabulous. He's, he's a- an he's interesting best. character, that's for sure. He is.
2: He is. So yeah. So my idea was like, if you're gonna tell this story, man, you can't just take the people at the top, right? You got to dig beneath the surface and. I talked to secretaries and, and um, just officials. I talked to John Cow and Tim Higgins and Art Highland. Highlands, you know, people who were officiating in that league and dealt with all of the crazy characters. Um, oh, it was so much fun. It was so much fun. The only stinky part was because of COVID, I had to do most of them on the phone or via Zoom. I just couldn't do them in person, which kind of stuck.
1: Well, you know, we're going to put you on the spot. We're going to need to get some good dirt. We're going to need to get some good stories. We're going to, we're going to need some background stuff because sure. the people you've talked to, we've, we've been fortunate enough to speak to, and it's been a lot of fun and it's been a big education for me. Uh, so talk about, let's start, um, Start. you can think about them, but we're going to hit you up for okay. a few. Why don't we start, why don't we start with Yukon? anything you'd like to share that you put up <laughs> along the journey about our fellow Huskies?
2: Well, I mean, I guess part of it is like, you know, so just the the general theme that surprised me about UConn that I didn't really understand because I kind of grew up to it late, people didn't want UConn to join the Big East. Like, that was not a popular choice. They weren't very good. And they were a big state school in the middle of stores. And uh, Dave Gavitt, being Dave Gavitt, of course, is the only guy that kind of saw it as as an option. But he basically gave John Toner, the athletic director, like, you're in or you're out. Gave him 24 hours. Like, pick. And he was like, okay. And I mean, I, I thought that was just kind of crazy considering how much a part of the fabric that they are now. But I mean, look, Jim Calhoun, you know, <laughs> as I described him in the book, he's the worst loser in maybe all of sports. I mean, he's, he's a horrible loser. Um, and the stories about him just sort of, you know, I mean, I remember the sixth overtime game. I covered that one. And I remember afterwards, everyone's like, oh, this wonderful, memorable, classic game. And well, who he one of nothing. Who they
1: um. Seriously. Oh, oh yeah. okay. All right. Here we just, go.
2: Yeah. Just a little. So, yeah, and after the game, like, he was so miserable, and I remember asking about it for the book, and he said, he's like, it's like saying to people, like, well, you were at, you know, if you were at Gettysburg, but you got shot. Said, well, yeah, I was a part of Gettysburg, but I got shot. Like, he, he was miserable still to this day about the sixth overtime wow. game. So, you know, there are so many stories about them and the great Allen versus Allen, you know, Big East tournament final between Allen Iverson and Ray Allen, and, just their whole backstories of how those two kind of came into you can't talk about two guys that came from opposite ends of the spectrum right to meet for an epic game but yeah I was like I said I I think maybe I wasn't as aware as I maybe should have been at just how unpopular of a choice UConn was like they kind of added them you know Holy Cross said no You're they right. took Boston in college and uh all of a sudden like all right well let's take UConn and and like I said again only the brilliance of Dave Gavitt could see that as a brilliant idea
0: yeah, I mean, that that came shining through in, in several of the stories that we did. And uh, we talked to Mike Trangisi uh, yep. for a little bit and he really uh, he really gave us a history lesson of how everything uh, came about. And and Dave's, you know, um, was so far ahead of his time by how he dealt with people and how he connected yep. people. You know, we go back to this all the time, Sonny and I on the show. And, you know, they used to have the Big East luncheon when mm-hmm. we played at the Garden, they would have two guys from each team at the table. So you kind of get to know, you know, uh, the guys that you're playing against. And he would do the same thing with the coaches. Yep. You know, Raft was on and he said that him and Coach Mass weren't really getting along. So their bags were in the same golf cart and they had to play yep. golf with each other. Talk a little bit about Dave uh, Dave Gavitt and, and, you know, how he was ahead of his time.
2: Uh, and in every possible way, I think that a, that a commissioner or a, a visionary in sports could be ahead of his time, he was. I mean, first of all, start about the whole, look, we're in the world of conference realignment, right? You know, everything kind of yeah. moving and shaking. He aligned Eastern basketball. I mean, Eastern basketball was the ECAC with 200 plus teams, everyone kind of playing, making their own schedule. There was no theme to it. And the ACC had pretty much owned college basketball because the eastern seaboard couldn't get its act together and all the great players were going to the ACC and he saw that I mean just to have that simple vision right is is unbelievable and it's really interesting in the book I talked to Mike Trangisi obviously at length and he talked about how Dave tried to get Penn State and the vote yeah. came down like multiple times to five to three they needed six votes and they, it was they lost every time five to three and think about it if he had added Penn State I mean where would we be I have no idea but a lot of things shook out because Penn State, you know, didn't fit in. So, you know, in terms of that, and, and as you said, with the way he partnered people, his his son Dan told me that he used to labor over the seating assignments at the dinners that they would have at the coaches' meeting, like because he wanted to make sure that the coaches that who weren't getting along, as you said, sat next to each other with their spouses, and had to kind of tolerate one another. Yeah. And he, you know, Rick Pitino told me a story. He he was in a in a huge tiff with uh. I if it was, I'm trying to remember who it was with. Um, it doesn't matter at this point, but anyway, he in a huge tip with one of the other coaches. And it might have been Rolly, and they could not agree. And and uh, yeah,
1: two Italians having a problem. They I know, right? That.
2: Can you imagine Rick Pitino <laughs> like arguing with people? Rolly Massimino.
1: Um,
2: but he sent them out on the golf cart, and Rick refused to ride in the cart. He walked all 18 holes just on principle because he was so stubborn. But you know, Dave tried to make sure. And Dave's message, what I thought was really important to all of the coaches, which is so lost, unfortunately, these days, the league comes first. If you want to complain and yell at one another, you're gonna do it behind closed doors and air every petty grievance. But when you sit in front of people, you are going to applaud one another, you're gonna support one another, and the league comes first. And they did that. I mean, they really did, if you think about it back in the heyday. I mean, Jim Beheim and John Thompson Jr. did not like one another and did not speak. That was real animosity. Yep. But pro- publicly they supported one another. Um, and that's hard to do. I mean, when there's such high competitors and with so much at stake, and I think sadly is a lot of what's lost these days. So, you know, Dave was just, man, I mean, I, I don't think you can, I, I you know, someone said, I think it was Bayheim said like, you don't have this league without, without Dave Gavitt and you don't have a lot of college basketball as we know it, and teams as we know them, without Dave Gavitt. I mean, again, UConn is not UConn without Dave Gavitt. I'm not sure Villanova is Villanova without Dave Gavitt. I really don't know.
0: Yeah, yeah. PGA, you know what else, too, was uh, interesting about about him is his vision for what he wanted uh, for his goals and stuff were, were really off the charts because he, you know, Trangisi came out and told us, he goes, it was going to be um, – pr- well, the first one was in pr- Providence. Yep. Uh, Providence, Syracuse, uh, Syracuse, Syracuse and Hartford. Yeah. Yeah. Hartford, and the Garden. And that's and exactly what he did. And especially after the class of 85 came in with Patrick right. and Eddie and Chris and those guys, Sonny, who's a member yep. of that class, by the way. Uh, so when they came in, it changed the whole conference, especially when Patrick came in. And that's when they went from the, the small arenas to the big yep. arenas. We wound up at Villanova playing at the Spectrum instead mm-hmm. of the Cat House. And er- everybody had a little... Fieldhouse that they played in, so right. that to me was his other big um, attribute is is his vision. I talk about that for a second, if you could. Yeah,
2: and it's really, if you think about it, it's really courageous, right? I mean, you know, not only are you putting all these schools together that nobody can see a logical fit except for you, but yeah, I mean, he, you know, Trangisi told the story that John Thompson Jr. called him the day he signed Patrick Ewing, and and Dave yes. Gavitt told, turned to, to to Trangisi and said, "We're going to the Garden." Like he knew, like he knew that now we have the, the people to, you know, the, the, the allure to bring this to New York. And honestly, it makes sense now, right? We all look at it, like, Yo, of course, he had Patrick Ewing, he had Chris Mullin, he had Georgetown, he had Syracuse, he had St. John's, of course he went to the garden, but you have to look at it in the context of 1979, 1984, 1983, that time, when again, like Eastern basketball was not a big thing. ACC basketball was so it took some serious daring to understand that your league was going to be good enough. And what's amazing is how much the league and Dave in that regard, elevated programs that weren't very good. Seton hall was nothing, nothing. I mean, people didn't even know where it was people in New Jersey didn't know where Seton hall was and they make it to a national championship game with, with PJ Carlisle. I mean, that doesn't happen without the Big East. And the Big East doesn't happen without Dave So you, you could say that about every program. I mean, certainly like, you know, Louie bringing in New York guys, they were going to be good. Georgetown was going to be good. Syracuse was going to be good. But there were some of those, you know, Providence wasn't very good um, until Rick, Rick Pitino came in. I mean, and all of that is because Dave saw something in that basketball brand that nobody else could see. Um, and it was like a personality. Like that was the cool part too. He didn't try to control it. He didn't try to like make it bland. He loved the, the nonsense, <laughs> the extracurricular. That was part of the Big East brand and they marketed it. I mean, that it worked. It, the brash bully, that, that was part of the appeal. And he knew that that worked with, with East Coast basketball.
1: Speaking of personalities, <laughs> let's, talk, let's talk about some of the coaches' personalities, right? <laughs> Unreal. So you have everything from Coach Beheim to, uh, you know, Coach John, Big John. And then you have Luke Karnasaka. We had a nice plethora of Italian coaches there for a while. We had yeah. Roy, we had Don Perna, was it, was it uh, uh-huh. uh, kind of for a bit, um, you know, and then PJ comes in the league and then Gary Williams, which of the coaches talk a little bit or tell a little story or two about any of the coaches that oh, you talked to that are you know off the wall as we have found but they talk- are
2: I mean so, so many of them so you know Gary Williams they called him wacko because wacko, he was yeah. right you know I mean he was insane so tightly wound he told a great story about like a game against Villanova where he thought Roley was kind of getting the better of the officials and Gary was and it was at Boston College and he was convinced that you know he was going to lose the whistle and at halftime you know, he saw Roley run off kind of chasing after the officials and he was pissed. He was like, wait a minute. So he goes chasing after Roley and Roley says, you know, go back to your locker room. And Willie, Gary Bow turns around and he's, to go. And he's like, this is my locker room. This is my gym. You don't get to tell me where to go. I mean, and they start screaming at one another. Nobody's in their locker room at halftime. They're just too, they're both too worried about who's going to get the upper hand with the officials. Um, Again, Roley too, you know, Jay Wright told me a great story. I'm, I'm sure you know, Chuck. I mean, Roley's yeah. bench was like four deep. You know, Tommy Lasorda's on the bench. You know, Terry Como's on the bench. Yeah. Whoever he could stick on the bench, it was like a who And I guess before Game at the Spectrum, Jay's first year as an assistant, they come out of the little locker rooms and they're like screaming at one another. And, you know, John Thompson's like, you better not have these celebrities on your bench. And Roley's going back at him and they're screaming and, ho- and hollering. And Jay's thinking, oh, my God, they're going to fight. And then they just laughed, <laughs> walked off like nothing happened. I mean, they were so combustible, but yet I think beneath it all, if they didn't like each other, like I said, Beheim and, and Thompson did not like each other. There was at least respect that allowed them to, to tolerate one another. I mean, Patino and after Roly, you know, Rick Barnes has got like, you know, needled by, by PJ. I mean, they're, every single one of them was bananas. I mean, I didn't even mention rats. I mean, Rath was like yeah. the, com- the, 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 com- the comedy hour of all of them.
0: Oh yeah. There's no, no doubt about that. I've spent- well, one, of, one of the things the said, with him.
1: that was one of the things the referees said, they said, you know, you could tell like when they did big 10 games or ACC games, then when they did big East games, when something happened, the camera went right over to the sideline and the coaches. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> really they, knew. Yeah. they
2: knew. I mean, and I remember, so, I mean, even like, you know, uh, after the sixth overtime game, you know, after Eric, even, I mean, that was late, right. That's long past the, the, heyday, if you will, but you know, Eric, they, they reviewed the shower, Eric, Diefen, Eric Dievendorf thought he hit it in regulation. John Cal went and re- Yeah, exactly. Like your fingernail, his, his sneakers, by the way, practically took out my computer when he jumped on press row and he thought he made that shot. But anyway, so John Cal went and did the review of the play and, and realized no, nah, it, it didn't count. So I think it was Bob Donato's like, I'll tell Jimmy Calhoun and, and John like great. I get to tell Bayheim and he's at Bayheim and just look at him and said, you better be and right, man. Like he was just yeah. like, you better be right. He was, but the, the officials, like, I mean, they were kind of part of it, right? I mean, where else, everybody knew their names too. Cause they worked yeah. all the same games well, and they tolerated yeah. them all.
0: Yeah, I yeah, was we, just going to say man. that we had, we've had a bunch of officials on yeah. and yeah. they said the same thing. It was like, you know, I asked them, I said, How hard is it for you to referee a game when they're not yelling, Hey, ref, you stink? They're yelling, Hey, Timmy, Hey, Higgs, Hey, Froggy, <laughs> Hey, you know, Hey, Larry Limbo, Hey, you know, they knew everybody. Hey, they knew. I Go didn't home. know a conference. I mean, I've played my whole life. But I didn't know anybody that knew the referees like they did in the Big East, you know?
2: And it, and it wasn't just like, you know, the players and the fans uh, knew them. Like, they told me yeah. stories about like, walking into like the garden and the fans are you better get this one right higgs and like they would go to a they went to one restaurant or two restaurants in, in new york because they knew that there was a back room and that if they wanted to have a beer that the that the owners would put them in the back room and hide them so no most no fans would come in and be like yeah higgins was down on some beers last night so no right. wonder he's off his game i mean like they they actually fought that far in advance like no no i mean it's that's the thing like the number of personalities that god converged to make that thing happen, it's just—I mean, it's insane. Crazy. We haven't even talked about Patrick Ewing going after Pearl Washington and Michael Graham and Andre Hawkins. We haven't even talked about any of that nonsense. I mean, there's just everything was bananas. Everything.
0: We've talked about that nonsense. I bet you have. We've had them all. Yeah, we've had we've had Mike and you broke right? a piece between Graham and uh, and Andre yeah. Hawkins.
2: Yeah. Nice. There that. you go. That's awesome. That is awesome.
0: Yeah, it's funny with the with last thing on the officials. It's funny because. Everybody I know who's a fan of the Big East and they say, Oh, who's refereeing tonight? Oh, we got, Oh, God, we got Higgins. And, but the if you're St. John's, if you're Syracuse, if you're Villanova, if you're Pittsburgh, everybody says, Oh, God, it's Higgins. Yeah. Well, everybody yeah. can't lose. You know, somebody's yeah, right. like, we, for we everybody Higgins. Hey, we got Higgs tonight. We're good. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. oh, No, no. Nobody says that. Yeah. It was 100%.
2: It is so true.
0: Yeah. So now talk about, um, you know 85 was a special year not not just for villanova but for the conference mm-hmm. you know mike uh trangisi was really uh you could tell he was like a proud papa when he was talking <laughs> about a 1985 and what happened back then talk a little bit about that and and how that plays into uh into the book uh,
2: yeah that was that was sort of like the epic year, right? I mean, first of all, what everyone kind of forgets is the league was almost four for four. I mean, Memphis State barely beat Boston College. They almost had four for four. It's amazing. And you know, what's amazing is that it happened so fast. I mean, the league forms in 1979 and by 1985, here we are with three teams in the final four. And I think the cool part was, you know, I'm not saying that anybody was rooting for or against anybody, but Georgetown had won the year before, and everyone had presumed that, of course, Georgetown was going to win. And, and everyone wanted, really, a Georgetown-St. John's championship game. You know, the, the, the bracket yeah. didn't work the way everybody wanted it to work, right? But the fact that Villanova actually won that game, I think most people agree gave the league even more credence. Because it was, you know, if Georgetown had won, it was like, all right, well, there's a lot of leagues that can kind of ride the coattails of one or two great teams, and everyone else is just okay. Here you have, you know, you've got two of the best teams in the country in St. John's and, and Georgetown that year, but yeah, here comes Villanova that wins the thing. And that sort of sent the message, like, wait a minute, like timeout, like this is different. Like this is not just a league built around one or two superstar teams or players. This is like, everybody has elevated to the level of national depth. I mean, I, that that season was just i mean you know well of course like magic in a bottle for villanova in so many ways kind of late to the game magic in the bottle i guess you could argue because i know the end of the regular season it was not but it's amazing because talking to to, um eddie pinkney and stuff like going back to the beginnings of that that class you know going back to five star when everyone's there to watch chris um, Mullen and 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 Patrick Ewing and no one's talking about Gary McLean or or Ed Tinkney that much, right? I mean they were sort of the the five star B team. Um, and yet it worked so well. And I think I just think that just set the league on on a different path. And and then it just became expected, I think, that there would be a biggest biggie team, and it wasn't always the same one. That's the cool part. I mean everybody had a shot at it. You, know, you think about it, then come along comes Providence, then comes Seton Hall, and then you know, yeah. Syracuse is in there. Um, all the teams from that league,
0: UConn, you had, know, UConn had
2: their turn, you know, everybody had their turn, and um, you don't see that. You still huh. don't see that, yeah. I mean, you think about it like, as good as the Big Ten is in, in present day, it's still, you know, you're not seeing, you know, Northern. Uh, you're not seeing Iowa and Northwestern in in the Final Four, right? It's just, it's a different yeah, well,
0: world. I, I think in the first ten years, Dana, we had uh, two national champions and yep. we had uh, six or seven teams in the Final Four, which is you know pretty cool. And I, I mean,
2: and I believe the stat was I have to look it up exactly, but of the teams that played for a championship, they all lost by like less than five points or something. It was yeah. it, and yes, I mean like it wasn't like they were getting teams into the Final Four accidentally who were then getting their doors blown off and having some moment of like all right well you got here but you didn't belong here they all belong there um, and that to me is just the sign of how strong that league made everybody
1: so there's the dagger that I just got from the 87 loss to Indiana the, yes the, I'm the, sorry it's the broken heart that was that all of us suffered so now let's talk let's get let's morph right in let's just go right into the players so you yep. got a, a great perspective and you talked to, because Chuck and I have talked a little bit about kind of the Mount Rushmore of the early Big East. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be the consensus was, you know, Patrick, Chris, Ed, and Pearl. Yep. And the coaches, and it's almost like the same coaches from the same teams. Talk about some of those players and how you were able to get some stuff from them or, or get some vibes or, or some yeah. you know, really understand what they, uh, cause I know what they meant to the league, but talk about yep. what you saw and learn.
2: What's really interesting is um, I don't think, you know, Patrick's an interesting character. He's very private as I'm sure you guys have spoken to him and, and guarded at some level. Um, I don't think he ever, understood until much later, how big of a deal he was to the big East, right? I mean, maybe you can't, if you're Patrick Ewing and you're in the midst of it, but he had gone through so much in high school with all the the issues in Boston and then what he went through in college with the horrible way he was treated. I don't think he appreciated what a big deal he was because it it, it made such a difference as a top player in the country that could go anywhere was gonna go to this baby league like that that nobody believed belonged and here he comes. You know, Chris Mullen, Chris Mullen going to New York. All right, like he's a New York dude. He's he's known Louie his whole life. He had options, obviously, but staying home wasn't that outlandish. But Patrick, you know, he was going out to UCLA. He could have gone to UCLA. He could have stayed home in Boston. For him to go to Georgetown was just, you know, it it sent a message that this league meant something. and, and people could do great things here. And then of course, you know, you add Pearl and I, I like the, I, I kind of build Pearl as sort of the bridge cause he stuck around, right? He stuck around, he didn't, he wasn't 85. He stuck around and, and kind of bridged them from that great 85 group where everyone thought like, well, what's gonna happen now? And here along comes Pearl who was just like, I mean, he was like a, a show, he was like a ticket, right? I mean, you wanted to buy a ticket to see Pearl more than you wanted to buy a ticket to see a basketball game. It
1: was a show, yeah.
2: Right? And he was the perfect bridge because he was totally different in terms of the way he dominated. He wasn't, you know, Patrick Ewing. He was just crossing people up and and making them sort of their head spin. Um, And that's the thing. Like, it makes sense, right? Because there were so many great players in the Northeast, but none of them wanted to stay home. And the fact that Patrick and then Chris and then Pearl and Eddie Pinkney to an extent as well, um, chose to stay home, you know, Chris Smith choosing to stay home in, in Connecticut. That's what made that league truly great. I mean, we could have all kinds of caricatures and crazy guys on the sidelines doing all kinds of antics, but if the game isn't great and the players aren't great, it's just a stupid show. And, it, and it's pretty much shown to be a kind of a fraud, mm-hmm. but the product on the court was so high end and one player became better than the next. And it just kept going, you know, after, you get into the Seton Hall era of, you know, Andrew Gaze. I know people will think, all right, he was a a mercenary hired for a season, but you know, him and and, and Daryl Walker, and you get into the with, with Billy Donovan and they were just such great players that carried it from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. And what I think is really cool is when you talk to the younger set, if you will, there's such an appreciation and understanding for what the torch was that they were carrying like when they walked into the garden, they understood that they were inheriting something really great and that they had an obligation to uphold it. And I thought that was really cool. I I, I am so impressed when I talked to like the the Jerry McNamara's, if you will, and, and even the Christmas and all those guys who came along secondary, they knew everything about what happened in the seventies and eighties and how lucky they were to be to carrying on that great tradition. I, I don't know, I just I, could, I, you know, I was privileged to sit at a lot of those Big East tournament games and watch so many of them up close. And I just, I used to always say, like, covering the Big East tournament when it was at a heyday day was every bit as, if not as good, as covering the NCAA tournament.
1: I mean, it just well, really was. I, well, I think it's like, it's a little bit chicken and egg, right? Did the, did the league come first? Did the players come first? And to me, you know, you can't have one without the other. And I think yep. the players, like you said, Patrick went to Georgetown. And then people are like, oh, okay, well, we're gonna watch Georgetown now. They didn't say I was gonna watch the Big East, right? But then they started watching Georgetown, and then all of a sudden TV comes in. So it was like a perfect blend of all yeah. these factors. And then now you have great players, and now you have the like you said, it wasn't top heavy. All of a sudden, 87 Syracuse is in the national championship, mm-hmm. they weren't around 85, 89 and 89, and in 87, Providence was another team in the right. final. 89, you have Seton Hall playing for the national championship. Mm-hmm. So it really rolled over, you know, it wasn't yeah. like, Oh, these are just bottom feeders. No, it was, these teams were on the up and coming, you know, and mm-hmm. it, it was fascinating. Who were some of the, the the characters that you got a real feel for with your talks?
2: Well, I mean, you know, obviously I did, I spent a lot of time on Patrick and I don't know if you can call him a pat- a character, certainly <laughs> he was a presence and, I enjoyed hearing some of the stories about how he carried himself on campus, trying to be an ordinary guy In the room with Gene Smith and he and Gene got into a, like fight one time and I think Patrick had some clackers and Gene was like, all right, like Patrick literally locked himself in the room to prevent himself from beating up Gene. You know, <laughs> so it was like, you know, he understood he was a rather large man that this could get kind of ugly in a hurry. But, you know, um, unfortunately Pearl, obviously not with us. I had to get people to tell me about just the razzle dazzle of playing against Pearl. You know, but going way, way back to, to your earlier days, like, you know, Louis Orr and Roosevelt Bowie, like they were so important. They they come into Jim Beheim's first year and 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 they make a show. I mean, and they were hilarious in terms of like I call them like country mouse and city mouse. Like they couldn't have been kind of in terms of their recruitment and their interests more different. Yeah. But together they were just magnificent and um, you know, kind of got Syracuse and Beheim rolling along um you know without them what happens to syracuse i i don't know i just feel like there's somebody like that at every single stop i mean like i said i talked to andrew Gaze in australia and you know he was here for a, a half a minute but that was such a crucial half a minute for seton hall and he was exactly what they needed they needed a shooter and here he comes like it. out of freaking nowhere
1: you talked to Mark Bryant. Right? Uh, really
2: no, watched? I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. But I talked to, you know, I talked to Darryl Walker and, um, uh, you know, they, he, just, they were, and Jerry Walker talking about all kind of that whole era of, of players. And um, yeah, and I talked, you know, like I said, Michael Graham and Gene Smith and all those guys, um, kind of what it was like to be in the locker room with,
1: uh-huh.
2: you know, kind of like if you're, I don't say a bit player isn't the right phrase, but if you're like a secondary player to these great players, what was it like being around them? And the thing that I think is really important is that those bit players, if you will, were every bit as important as the star players, because very often, like, you know, these big games don't necessarily ever follow the script like they are supposed to. And it's like somebody else who comes along and does something unexpected. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I just feel like uh, I, I, I think and in, in, in you talked about with the marriage of players and, and league. The other thing we're forgetting to mention is the marriage of, of the timing of ESPN, right? I mean, here yeah. we go. Like a little sports network happens to be born at exactly the same time. Yeah, it's it a, it a perfect
0: storm. Yeah, yeah definitely a perfect uh, storm. Yeah.
2: Really? I mean, like Mike Trangisi just said he went to like some mud soaked field in the middle of nowhere, Connecticut. And, and, you know, Steve Michael was telling me he was, a student, when uh, he lived in, you know, he lived in Connecticut at the time, and he took one of the first tours that ESPN offered when it was nothing. He said it was like going into a gas station with TV monitors, I and mean, it was like nothing. But you think about the role that that played, because now all of a sudden these games are on television at a time when nothing's really on television, and that changes everything too. It makes players like, you know, Pearl Washington more of a household name as opposed to just a regional name.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, talk, talk about now you, 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 in the book, you go right from the beginning, right up to current day out, Right. And talk yeah. about, talk about how it's changed now after the realignment and, and now it's really all basketball first schools, you know, all the football well, schools have gone by the wayside, yeah. the, the BCs and the Syracuses and, you know, Sonny is still uh, upset about that. I know as he should be being a Syracuse guy. Um yeah. Talk about the differences now in the conference versus back then.
2: Well, I've often made the case that the reason that the, that the Big East was able to kind of reform in its own likeness, if you will, go back to its roots, is because people were so attached to that league that they weren't going to let it die. It was more than just like, OK, got to survive and, and add teams and you know figure this out. I mean, for a while kind of got ugly there when you're adding, you know, I can't, I don't even want to, I, I kind of glossed over a lot of the teams because teams were in it for like, literally, it felt like five minutes. I think Temple yeah. was in the biggie for like eight seconds. Um, you know, Tulane might've been in, but I'm not really quite sure. I was like, it Cincinnati, was so messy. It like that, right. Yeah. It was Cincinnati. so messy for, for such a while. Um, but when it died, when Syracuse left and, and look, that was awful. And I mean, I spoke to Jim Beheim at the time and, and he was miserable about it then and, while he's come around to acceptance, I don't think this would be his choice today. Um, when that happened, and it really pulled the rug out from er- out everybody, there was such a purpose to salvage what was special about that league. And what was special about that league in the original was the like-mindedness of similar schools that were basketball centric. I mean, that was the original goal of the league. And that's why it was able, I think, to find itself and its footing again so quickly because it un- it understood what its identity was because it always had it it kind of got got like, lost in the weeds there for a little while and it was basically like let's go back to our roots now granted I mean there are, you know Xavier and DePaul and Creighton I get it it's, Marquette it's different but um, the the essence of it still exists and it's basketball first and I remember when they did it. I mean, I count me as one of the cynics, thinking like, I don't know, like everyone needs football money. Like, can they do this? Um, can they actually be competitive? Can they actually make a? Like, I, I know they can play, but will they actually be any good? And here we are. Yeah. <laughs> They're pretty good, and um, I think it's because it's it again. Like, if you talk to the current Big East coaches, there is such an affinity of league first, just like there was back in '79. Like. Whatever infighting is going on behind closed doors, it's behind closed doors. It's always league first. They support one another. They understand the need for one another. And that's why it's good again. I mean, obviously, adding UConn back makes so much sense. Yeah. For both parties. Um, oh, that's great.
1: That's yeah, great.
2: it's so much better. And and look, they held on to New York. They held on to their name. They held on to the, uh, it held on to the Garden contract. Yeah. And I get it. Look, I mean, look, I'm one of those people like, you know, I was, I loved when it was the craziness. Like I was there for Kemba Walker. I was there for the six overtimes, all those, that essence of that Big East, I it's not the same. Like, I'm not gonna lie, like going to lie. And to New York now, watching Creighton play Marquette is not the same. It's not, but it's still pretty good basketball. And it's, and it's all basketball. So I think that's why it survived.
0: You know, and I think the success of Villanova currently in the run that they've okay. had over the last seven years or so, it's kind of like, what what Georgetown was on back mm-hmm. when when Sonny and I played, so yeah. I think I think that helps them. And I think I I also think the better that Georgetown gets, I was very happy for Patrick that they won Me this too. year, because I think the better that Georgetown gets and the better St. John's gets, the better the league 100%. gets. You know?
2: I've said that for years. I've said for years when the Biggies gets Georgetown and St. John's back on track, that's when that league will take off again because it's that's pop. the main. Yep that's the name brand, right? Like that is just like, it's like they're playing word association. I say Big East, you say Georgetown Villanova and say John's like, it's not complicated. So when they get it going and if they can get it going, um, yeah, I, that's when, you know, look, it's great that Creighton has been very, very competitive and very, very good. And that's awesome. And Xavier has been good here and there and, you know, Providence, we need Providence too. I think the league yeah. needs Providence too, but, and Seton Hall for that matter. But, georgetown and st john's because of that history if they could get it going um then you're really on to something that's that's going to be i think the pivotal thing is, is just to get it back and and yukon and um you know yukon can do a lot because yukon brings essentially the entire state of, of connecticut to the garden whenever they play ridiculous
0: yeah so the big east inside the most entertaining and influential conference in basketball history comes out tomorrow we're talking with Dana O'Neill. Dana, how did you come up with the title for the book? <laughs> I mean, it's one of the that's one of the biggest titles I think I've ever seen on a book.
2: You know, it's funny because like right, we went we went through so many things. We were trying to be cute and clever. Like there was a line that Jim Calhoun gave me that was he said it, it um it was Camelot with bad language. Like it was a great line to just to define what the big East was, right? But if you put it was Camelot with great language, like people don't necessarily go to the bookstore and understand that that's a book about the Big East, or if you do a search engine, which all these things matter in the present day, right? That, that's not gonna come around. So after trying every kind of cutesy sort of thing, we were like, well, let's just call it the Big East. I mean, that's kind of what it is. And then come up with sort of this tagline that really defines it. And I'm sure some people might argue the tagline, is it really the most influential conference in college basketball history? we can fight that if you want to, but I tend to think it is because I think college basketball grew around the big East in that heyday. I mean, it television. Like I said, we talked about everything kind of came together with television, great team, great coaches, great players, and all of a sudden the sport exploded. Um, so that, that was sort of the argument, but yeah, it was kind of like, we could be cute or we could just be really clear. And then we were really uh, psyched because we asked the league for permission to use the old, the, the um, title is written in the old logo font from the yeah. original 79 uh, league kind of when it was founded. So that was kind of a fun twist of, for the, you know, the, 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 the nostalgia of it.
0: So the book comes out tomorrow. What is the one thing, name, give us one thing that you want, you know, somebody who's reading this book and doesn't know much about the biggies. What's the takeaway yeah. for the college basketball fan when they read your book?
2: Well, I, I would hope for the college basketball fan, it's an understanding of sort of um, why this league's footprint still resonates today. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's so unique. If you talk, I mean, look, you guys are doing this Big East Rewind podcast for a reason. People still have such an affinity for the Big East. And, um, and there's a reason for that. Uh, And and it's not just because of people being true to their schools and true to their alma mater. It's because it captured such a unique time in, in sports history. Um, And it, it had such a representation of sort of of a section of the country of, of an attitude of people in a certain section of the country that just permeated through that league. And I think the takeaway to me is like, it was sort of what college basketball was kind of meant to be about. It's a game you learned in the playground and you brought it into these much more civilized arenas if you will, but the game was not necessarily made vanilla. It It kept its essence of personality, of snarl and brought college basketball to me into the forefront of having that same appeal. I, you know I, I just feel like the biggies represented sort of what basketball is supposed to be
1: okay well, i gotta give i gotta give you one i gotta give you one yeah. so, the book is coming out here's your chance to give that little juicy plug like <laughs> you know right before like who shot jr you know kind of <laughs> Something that really is, and they got to read the book, you know? Oh, sorry, it's yeah. in the book. Oh, you got to read the book. Do you want to give a little teaser? Go ahead. Yeah,
2: I, so there's there's one thing, and, it you know, it was one of those. I sat down with Mike Trangisi for, like, I don't know, five hours in Providence at at, at a conference room, hotel conference room. And at one point, he paused, and he was telling the story about when he became commissioner. And um, he got a phone call from Frank Rienza, the old Georgetown athletic director, telling him he needed to come to Washington, D.C., and Mike was in Miami for it was at the time, Miami was in uh, the league playing football and he was at a football game. And he's like, I'm at a football game. I can't, he's like, no, you need to come here. You need to come here. And so Mike flew um, to DC the day after the game. When he, when he got out of the airport, his ride was waiting for him and idling in the car was John Thompson Jr. And Mike got in the car with him and they rode off somewhere. And there was a reason that John wanted to talk to him he was, you know, when, when Mike became commissioner, there was a concern that John had and he had never told that story before, Mike had. So unfortunately, John had passed by the time I got the story. But So it was kind of an interesting, I thought, insight into the whole pivotal, a pr- pretty pivotal transition when Mike took over from Dave and this really cool conversation that kind of tells what Mike was up against and really how cool John Thompson Jr. really was.
1: So now if you want to have the details of what happened in that conversation, you're going to have to
0: read the book. You got to buy, the book. Right. Please like buy the book. I like that. I like that. you good, Sonny. Me too. That's nice. You there could be you in go. marketing,
2: Sonny. You could be my agent.
0: He, yeah, he's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. That's why, we, that's why we keep him around, Dana. But listen, <laughs> I, I can't tell you, I can't tell you what a thrill it was for us to talk. We kind of are paralleling what, what you, what you did in your book with Absolutely. this uh, podcast that Sonny and I have done. And, uh, hearing the old stories and now getting to, getting to um, catch up on the entire league history. It's going to be I can't wait to read it. It's going to be fantastic. Thank you so very much for coming out and uh, hanging with us tonight. Uh, we really appreciate it. We'll get thank you thank our you addresses and you can send us that. No, I was,
2: gonna you, <laughs> I was actually just going to say that when the book comes out, I'm sending you those <laughs> copies. Absolutely. Very good. Them in the mail
0: there's, a cheap, there's a cheap marketing plug <laughs> yeah. for me. There he is. <laughs>
2: done
0: <laughs> in the, the big east inside the most entertaining and influential conference in basketball history I mean dana right. o'neill the author we thank you again for coming out go get the book it comes out tomorrow uh i know everybody who's been listening to the show is obviously fans of the big east and if you're a fan of the big east you gotta read her book you know um so please go out and get it so this has been the Big East Rewind with Chuck Everson and Sonny Spera. Big East Rewind was directed and produced by Nick chico Corris and Daryl Gurney. You can check us out on YouTube. Uh, put in Big East Rewind in the search bar and all the shows will come up that we've done so far. Please don't forget to like and subscribe. Thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us. Have a great night. Thank you. Thank you,
1: Dana, very much.